Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you please join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Father, now, as we have heard your word being publicly read, we ask now that you would fulfill the promise that you've given to us, that when your word is being preached, when your word is being declared, that you, Holy Spirit, would use it as a means of grace to where we would be changed by it, we would be transformed, that we would be refreshed in our hearts, that we would be renewed in our minds, and that our passion, our soul, would be in full conviction of the hope that we have in you, Lord Jesus. We pray now that as we have laid our burdens at your feet, that you would now quiet whatever distracting thoughts, that you would banish whatever fears and anxiety that we have in our hearts. And instead, we can now sit comfortably at peace, at ease, in safety at your feet. Lord, we pray that we, as we gather in this place, would humbly receive the bountiful, refreshing meal of the word of God the bread of life that gives us hope and peace, the living water that refreshes our soul, quenching every thirst, and that we could be strengthened and empowered to therefore go back out into the world to live courageously and boldly for your kingdom, that we would seek to honor you in everything that we do, think, and feel to where we would relate to not only each other but to those around us, even our enemies, for the sake of blessing one another. Father, would you please now inspire us, strengthen us, and encourage us, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, guys, you know, one of the biggest criticisms that Christians get a lot these days is the criticism that basically says that we as followers of Jesus are utterly irrelevant. More and more, we are living in a time where our culture is telling the people of the church that our Christian faith and hence our Christianity is utterly irrelevant. In fact, some people would even go so far as to say that Christianity is dangerous and therefore we should minimize the influence it has in the world today. Uh, One of the common phrases that people have used throughout the years to convey this idea of how irrelevant Christians are is the one that goes like this. Have you heard this one? You Christians, you're so heavenly minded that you are no earthly good. You heard that phrase before? Christians, they're so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. You know, if you parse out that statement, it conveys an underlying idea, doesn't it? And that idea is Christians are utterly out of line with reality. Christians are out of touch with reality. They're out of tune. They're not in correspondence with the real world. You know, when non-Christians hear some of the things that we Christians firmly believe as the truth, for example, virgin births, bushes being on fire but not being consumed, people walking on water. You know, when non-Christians hear some of the things that we believe, they end up feeling like, yeah, okay, right? They feel a little bit dubious towards us. They feel a little uncomfortable around us because they think that if we genuinely believe these things, we must be a little bit unstable, Right? And as a result, they don't want Christians like us to have any kind of influence across any major spheres of influence in the world. For example, we don't want Christians uh, running the White House. We don't want Christians uh, deciding what kind of curriculum we have in the public schools. We don't want Christians to have any influence about economic development and so forth because the underlying idea is that Christians, because they really believe in some of the stuff that's written in the Bible, they're unstable. They're out of touch with reality. And maybe, just maybe, for those of you who grew up going to church, maybe if you're honest with yourself, you have wondered whether or not you 
are out of touch with reality because maybe you take your faith too seriously or maybe you're on the other side of it. Maybe you wonder that if you do start taking your faith more seriously, am I out of touch with reality? Is my faith really out of tune with the way the real world works to where if I go all in, if I really embrace this Christian faith, that I am at best socially irrelevant or at worst culturally dangerous? Well, that is the question that we need to ask ourselves. And as a response to that question, we're beginning a new series through the book of Ecclesiastes. And I've decided to entitle this series this title, Reality Used to Be a Friend of Mine. Okay? And the point of this series is to answer that question that all of us in here at some point in our Christian faith have wrestled with. And that is, is Christianity able to deal with the real world? To where if I embraced it, if I became a devout Christian... To where I can really be someone who is in tune with reality rather than out of reality. This series is going to answer that question with a firm yes. And because what I contend in this series is that it's only when you embrace Christianity, it's when you really get serious about your faith, that you're most in tune with reality, not out of tune with it. And so... As we kick off this series, we're going to take a look at the very first chapter in the very, uh, in the very first 11 verses of the book of Ecclesiastes to see how this is the case. And as we do, we're going to see three things in our passage today. First, we're going to see the preacher who sighs. The preacher who sighs. Then we're going to see the two reasons for our sighs. And finally, we're going to end it with the only hope for our size. The preacher who sighs, the two reasons for our size, and finally, the hope of our size. Okay, let's jump right in. First, the preacher who sighs. Our passage begins with the author of Ecclesiastes in verse 1 introducing himself. Listen to how he introduces himself in verse 1. He says this, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, when you first read how the author is introducing himself, you can't help but to notice how long this introduction is, right? It's kind of long-winded. I mean, he really seems to stretch out this introduction uh, to himself. I mean, if you hadn't known any better, right, he almost sounds like one of those guys who likes listing off his credentials to show off how cool he is. You know, he's like, hey, I'm the preacher. I'm the son of David. I'm also king in Jerusalem. Kind of sounds like one of those macho guys on Wall Street, like, hey, you know, I'm so-and-so. I grab a summa cum laude at this university. I work at this Fortune 500 company, you know, a CEO. I'm married to that hot, cool model celebrity so-and-so, right? And you read this and you're like, wow, is this guy full of himself? Is that why he's extending his long introduction like this? Well, I don't think so. I don't think that is what's going on. And here's why. Among Bible scholars today, there is a lot of debate and hence a lot of disagreement on who actually wrote Ecclesiastes. There is a lot of confusion, a lot of debate, and therefore a lot of disagreements on who actually wrote this book, Ecclesiastes. Now, traditionally, it was always believed that King Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. And if you think about it, it, that makes a lot of sense because, after all, Solomon literally was a son of David. He really was a king in Jerusalem. And when you couple that with the fact that he wrote other books in the Old Testament that have kind of the same genre flavor as Ecclesiastes, like Song of Solomon, like Proverbs. In fact, some of the things that you read in Proverbs sound very similar to what you read in Ecclesiastes. You think, oh, yeah, of course, hands down, Solomon must have written Ecclesiastes. But believe it or not, 
That is not the majority of opinion today. Most Bible scholars today from all spectrums, liberal, conservative, fundamental, evangelical, mainline, conservative, denominational, they all say now, most of them say, that Solomon didn't write it. It's only the small minority today who hold to the traditional view that Solomon actually wrote this book. Now, I'm not going to bore you with all the nitty-gritty details as to why so many scholars today don't believe Solomon wrote it. I just want to bring up one main reason why they think Solomon didn't write it. And that's because the book of Ecclesiastes is very dark. It's very, very dark. It's very cynical. It's very pessimistic. It's very gritty, right? And as a result, it just doesn't seem to fit. You know, for those of you who grew up going to church and you've never read the book of Ecclesiastes, if someone handed you the book of Ecclesiastes, right, and you read it for the first time, I'm willing to bet that most, if not all of you, would think that you're not reading the Bible, because it just doesn't sound very bible if I could use that word. It doesn't sound like something that you would expect to find in the Bible. Listen to how one Bible scholar, a man by the name of Zach Eswine, puts it. He says this in his commentary. He says this, quote, Many people who cherish the Bible do not expect the words we find in the book of Ecclesiastes. What many of us have come to expect from the Bible in general, and this messenger in particular, doesn't match. We are surprised when this sage mentor tells us that he, quote, hated life and that gating wisdom Wisdom and knowledge does nothing but stress us out and make us sad. How can a spokesman for God talk like this in God's name? We might think to ourselves, this guy doesn't sound like Isaiah, Jeremiah, or John, or Peter. More importantly, he does not sound like Jesus. The author of the Ecclesiastes does not sound like someone who is worthy being on that list, that distinguished list of authors who wrote the various books of the Bible because the way he talks about life, the way he reacts to life, it just sounds highly inappropriate for someone who apparently fears God. Did you guys know that in the book of Kings? That's how Solomon is described. He's a man who fears God. And when you read Ecclesiastes, you think, this isn't the words of a man who fears God. Surely Solomon could not have written Ecclesiastes. Or could he? You know, one of the assumptions that so many Christians make today basically goes like this. If you are a devout follower of God, if you have a sincere relationship with God where God has done great things for you and through you, right, then you would never have any struggles. You would never have any issues. You would never have any doubts when it comes to the world, when it comes to yourself, when it comes about God, when it comes to life, right? Isn't that one of the things that we assume that if you're living right with God, life is going to make sense. You're going to be able to make sense of life. You're going to have your life all put together, right? Where did we get such a notion? You see, one of the main reasons why I believe Solomon wrote this book is precisely because of the very same reasons why so many people today don't think he wrote it. It's precisely because of the fact that it is so dark, it is so gritty, it is so shocking, it is so real. Which takes us back to the very long introduction in verse 1. Solomon really stretches out his introduction. He calls himself what? The preacher, the son of David and king in Jerusalem. Why? Because... He's trying to describe himself in a way that's not only true of him, but true of every single follower of God. You see, for Solomon and for us, there's a side of us who, as followers of God, know that we should live a certain way. We should act a certain way. We should portray ourselves in a way that we really do believe everything the Bible says, that we really do try to live out what the Bible says, that we really try to live according to what the Bible says, right? And for Solomon, that meant being the son of David, king in Jerusalem, the inheritor of the covenant of David, 
right? He has this title that simply represents more than just politics. It represents spirituality. It represents godliness, right? He knows there's a side to him and to all of us that knows that we have to think and act and, and behave in certain ways to show that, yes, we are for God. And yet, by calling himself the preacher, he also acknowledges there's a side to him and a side to all of us that really struggle, that really can't make sense of life. You see, when most of us read the word preacher, we think of someone who preaches the gospel, you know, someone like myself, someone like Pastor James, someone who's like a spiritual leader, someone who has everything together and so forth. Not that I have everything together, but you know what I mean? It's someone of respect and authority, but that's not how Solomon is using the word preacher. You know how he's using the word preacher? He's using the word preacher like how we would use blogger, right? That 20-something depressed, angst-driven, you know, millennial twixter 20-something blogging about life and how miserable he is. Or, or he's like the Facebook commentator who just vomits all of his frustrations and angers and, and injustices of life on his Facebook post for the whole world to see to where he's preaching to the world about how messed up life is. No, the use of the word preacher in Solomon's usage here is someone who's trying to be real and honest about how messed up life can be and how difficult life can be. Now, for those of you who grew up hearing Sunday school lessons about King Solomon, there's a part of you that think, this doesn't sound right. This is not the way I learned about Solomon. This is not something that I'm familiar with when it comes to the Sunday school lessons I got about Solomon. Well, if that's how you think, my only response to you is, you need to read your Bible more, <laughs> okay? You need to study your Bible more carefully because if you actually read 1 Kings, for example, which chronicles the life of King Solomon, you'll hear and read the kind of king that he was, you see, many of us think that Solomon was this wise, great spiritual giant who had everything put together, everything figured out to where he was so faithful to the Lord. No, far from it. Listen to how one Bible scholar, a man by the name of Warren Wearsby puts it. He says this in describing Solomon's kingship, quote, Solomon ruled over a great nation that required a large standing army and extensive government agencies. He carried on many costly building projects and lived in luxury at court, but there was a problem. Somebody had to pay for it. Solomon solved this problem by ignoring the original boundaries of the 12 tribes of Israel, which God says we shouldn't do, and dividing the nation into 12 tax districts. In time, the whole system became oppressive and corrupt. King Solomon began his reign as a humble servant of the Lord, but as he grew older, his heart turned away from Jehovah to the false gods of the many wives he had taken from foreign lands. Many of the things that Solomon did that seemed to bring glory to God were actually contrary to the word of God. Solomon was not some well-put-together, pristine guy who had it all figured out because he was so godly and was so well-put-together. No, Solomon was a man who struggled in his faith. In other words, Solomon was a follower of God who was very much in touch with reality. Not out of touch with reality, but very much in touch with reality. Evidenced by the fact that he struggles so much with reality. As it's spoken of here in Ecclesiastes. I mean, listen again to how he viewed life in verse 2. What does he say in verse 2? He says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. I like how some translation like the NIV puts it, where it says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. All of life is meaningless. What exactly is Solomon saying when he says life is vanity? Life is meaningless. What is he saying? Well, it would help to know that in the original Hebrew, which is what Ecclesiastes is written in, that the word that is translated. 
translated in our Bibles as either vanity or meaningless is the Hebrew word hebel. Hebel. Sounds like pebble, but it's hebel. And what does hebel mean? Literally, it means breath of air. That's what it means. That's what hebel is. So when Solomon says life is vanity, what he's really saying, life is a breath of air. (laughs) Can you imagine if a young, angry teenager says, life is a breath of air. You're like, what? What are you talking about, dude? And, and, and you, you hear this and you're like, wait a minute, how did the translators of the Bible, the English translators, how did they get vanity or meaninglessness from breath of air? That makes no sense. But if you know what Bible scholars know, you know exactly what Solomon is saying when he says breath of air. You see, when he is saying that life is a breath of air, he's specifically thinking of a particular kind of breath of air. It's a breath of air that you're very familiar with. And if you work with teenagers, you're very familiar with. The breath of air that Solomon is thinking of is this. Did you guys catch it? Let me do it one more time just in case you didn't get it. Right? It's the sigh. The sigh. Right? What's the sigh? The sigh is that breath of air that by itself weighs nothing but in your heart carries the entire weight of all your fears, all your troubles, all your cares, all your frustrations, all your anger that you have inside of you. It is the sigh. So when Solomon is saying life is a breath of air, what he's saying is life sucks to where I just want to sigh all the time. Life is a sigh upon sigh upon sigh. Life, when I think about it, just makes me want to go, that's what he's saying. Here's the question, Solomon. Why is life so bad to where when you think about it, all you want to do is a sigh? Why is it that you just think life is just meaningless and meaningless? The answer to those questions leads me to my next point, the two reasons for our size. According to a recent study that was done at Stanford University and UCLA, it turns out on average Americans sigh every five minutes. Seriously, time yourself sometimes. Maybe it's like one minute. I don't know for some of you. But for most Americans, on average, sigh every five minutes. And according to another study that was conducted at the University of Oslo, scientists have discovered that one of the main reasons why we sigh so much is because we are so frustrated with life. Take a listen to the article that reported this study from psychologytoday.com. Listen to what it says. In general, the experimenters noted that sighs are associated with a negative mood, a sign of disappointment, defeat, frustration, boredom, and longing. So, what is a sigh? According to this study, it's an expression of resignation and frustration. Why do we sigh? Well, according to scientists, we sigh because we feel disappointed with life. We feel frustrated with life. We feel like we have been defeated with life to where literally we want to what? Resign. We want to give up. We want to turn in a resignation to life. That is what it's saying. And given the fact that if we do indeed sigh every five minutes, that means we feel this way a lot. We feel this way all the time. We feel this many, many times throughout the day, throughout the months, throughout the year. And here's the question. Why are we sighing so much? Well, Solomon in our passage gives us two reasons why the human race is constantly sighing. First reason, the problem of the sun Second reason, the problem of FOMO. The problem of the sun, the problem of FOMO. Let's quickly go through them. First, the problem of the sun. Let's read again 
what he says in verses 3 to 4. He says, what does the man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Here Solomon identifies for us one of the main reasons why we sigh so much. And it all centers on what he says about the sun. About the sun. What is it about the sun? Look, look again to what he says in verse 3. He says, all of our toil is, quote, under the sun. That phrase, under the sun, you're going to see it scattered throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And the question is, what does he mean by that? What does it mean to be under the sun? Well, we get a good hint of it in what he says in verse 5. What does he say there? He says, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Hastens to the place where it rises. That word hasten literally means hurry, quickly, okay? It means quickly go. So what he says in verse 5 literally goes like this. The sun rises and the sun goes down and quickly goes to the place where it rises. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever experienced a day where the sun quickly went to night as soon as it rose? (laughs) Have you ever experienced a day less than 24 hours? Have you ever experienced a moment as soon as you wake up, the sun goes down, the moon is up? No. What Solomon is describing here is not astronomically possible, which means when he talks about the sun here, he's not literally talking about the sun. So here's the question. What does he mean? What is he referring to when he uses this phrase, under the sun? What is he talking about? He's talking about you. He's talking about me. He's talking about all of us, specifically in terms of how we view ourselves. Let me explain with this very long, exaggerated illustration. Okay, just imagine for a moment that you are a struggling artist living in Manhattan and you want to make it big onto Broadway. I know for you guys, you're thinking, uh, not very applicable illustration, right? Some of you guys are like, yes, I really wanted to do this, right? But let's just imagine that you are a struggling artist, a singer, performer. You're trying to make it big on Broadway. You want to be the next, I don't know, Julie Andrews. You want to be the next, you know, Michael Crawford. I don't know, some big name superstar, Elaine Page, whatever, right? And you get a call from your agent and says, I have good news. I got you a role in The Lion King or Phantom or Layman. You're like, what? It's like, yeah, I got you that role. Just come in for rehearsals tomorrow at this theater, blah, blah, blah. And so you go. And as you're going into the city for this rehearsal, you're just imagining yourself center stage with a huge spotlight shining brightly down on you like the hot summer sun is shining down on you. And you're just imagining the crowds roaring you know, with applause and saying, encore, encore, and you're just being filled with such joy. And you show up and you meet the casting director. He's like, oh, yeah, your agent called me. Here's your role. First two minutes of the play, that's it. <laughs> like, what? Yeah, yeah, you're at the very beginning of the 90-minute play. You have two minutes of 90 minutes. That's it. How are you going to feel at that moment knowing that the spotlight that signifies how great and wonderful you are is only going to be on you for measly two minutes. And after that two minutes is gone, you have to go into the back and wait for the next 88 minutes so the play can be over. How are you going to think? How are you going to feel? You know what you're going to feel? Vanity, vanity, meaningless. Life is so meaningless, right? Solomon is telling us here that one of the reasons why we sigh so much is because like the struggling artist in my illustration, we come to the realization that we are just not that important. 
that we are merely just minor characters in the drama called life. The spotlight of life, life under the sun, does not linger on us. In fact, quite the opposite. It moves quickly off of us as soon as it's upon us, which means what? It means whatever great things that you think you've done in your life, things that make you feel important, significant, like you're going to be a memorable person, that you're going to leave a mark on this earth after you're gone, reality hits in and says, no, you're not that important. You're not that significant. You only have two minutes, and that's it. And no one's going to remember you. You're going to be forgotten. This is what Solomon is getting at when he says in verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but what? The earth remains forever. In meditating on this very verse in verse 4, Zach Eswine, who I quoted earlier, he writes this, quote, People are soon forgotten. As I write, a national discussion recently arose from the Grammy Awards. Sir Paul McCartney performed live on stage. In response, a large population of young people asked, who's Paul McCartney? Mention Joe DiMaggio, Shirley Temple, Dizzy Gillespie, Johnny Carson, and young persons say, who? I recently attended a school orientation for my daughter. The junior high teachers reminded us that the young people now entering junior high do not know for personal experience what September 11th means. Only 11 years later, an event that profoundly changed the lives of a generation become a chapter in a history book summarized for bored 7th graders studying for a quiz. The first reason why you and I and every human being that walks on this, why we sigh so much, is because in spite of what our own ego says about us, that we're just so important, that we have such a big impact on this earth, that we are so valuable and memorable... The harsh reality is we are not. In fact, what Solomon is talking about here is very similar to what has been known as the 20-40-60 rule. Have you guys heard of this rule before, the 20-40-60 rule? It goes like this. When you are 20, you worry about what others think about you. When you are 40, you don't care what others think about you anymore. When you are 60, you realize nobody was thinking about you at all. This is the problem of the sun problem that you and I, everyone has to face. Hurts, doesn't it? But you know what? Solomon says, I'm sorry, it's going to sting a little bit more because he tells us another reason, a second reason why we sigh so much. And I call this the problem of FOMO, F-O-M-O, the fear of missing out. Listen again to what he says, starting in verse six, the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind and on its circuits, the winds return. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Here Solomon is describing a universal problem that every human being struggles to solve, and he summarizes it right for us in verse 8. What does he say? The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. According to Solomon, there is a condition that every human being struggles with throughout their life, and that struggle is we are constantly, chronically dissatisfied with the things and the people and the places of this world, things that we acquire, the people that we meet, the experiences that we have, the places that we go, all of it 
It just fills us with a sense of dissatisfaction, disappointment. This is what he means when he says the eye is not satisfied with what it sees. It needs to see more that's out there. What the ear hears? No, it wants to hear more new things. It always wants to discover what's out there. It wants to, to really know what's out there and, 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 and capture something fresh and new. We always want to see more things. We always want to listen to more things. We all want to discover more things. There is an endless yearning within us. An endless yearning that Solomon poetically describes in verse 7 as, All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. The sea is referring to the human heart. The streams represent all that is fresh, like the fresh water of the streams going into the sea. Right? And yet the sea, which represents our hearts, it's not filled. It's not overflowing. It's still saying more, more, more. Something new, something fresh, something different. It always wants more. Now some of you are hearing this and you're thinking, well, okay, I hear what you're saying. You're saying that there in the human heart is this insatiable desire for more, more, more. Why is that a problem, Pastor? So what, we have this inner yearning that always wants to go to new places or acquire new things or meet new people or have new experiences. Why is that a big deal and why would that cause us to be filled with sighs? Well, listen again to what he says in verse 6. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and it circuits the sin, the sin, no, the wind returns. What is Solomon saying here? He's saying, everything that's new out there, everything that you are chasing after that you think is going to be new and refreshing and unique and original, it's not new. You know what it is? It's just a vicious, endless circle. That's what he's saying. Because even when you get new things, you realize, hey, these new things that I've got, they're not really that different. It doesn't really change me or affect me any differently than from the things that I already own. Oh, these new places that I go to that seem fun and exciting, those places don't really change me or affect me in a way that are any different to the other places that I've been to before. Or the new people that I meet that are so fun and cool, these new friends, you know, these guys don't change me or change or, or, or transform me. That's any different to the friends that I already have had or the people that I've already known. There is a staleness to life. To where you are fooled into thinking that you're on your way to something new. That you're journeying to a destination where you'll go somewhere new or meet somewhere new. But in the end, even if they're new faces, they're still the same kinds of people. Even when you go to the places that seem cool and you're discovering new things, you realize you're not learning anything that much new from the places you've been to already. You end up going in this vicious a vicious cycle. It's just the same old, same old. Just like the winds that give the appearance like they're going somewhere, when in the big picture they're just going in circles across the globe, across the circuits. Listen to how one Christian pastor, a man by the name of Mark Buchanan, how he describes his own personal experience with this. He said this, quote, I have stood atop a peak in central British Columbia, the earth stretching away in dizzying panoramic wildness. The wind gripped my body and stung my skin with a cleanness, Cleanness like first love, and I felt both huge and small, conquered and conquering, afraid and undaunted, and yet I felt the flattening, hallowing power of boredom. I have been at reunions with people I love and long to see, and in the midst of a gale of laughter sweeping across the room, I felt a shiver of loneliness twine down my bones. I swum among the shoals of water-sculpted rock and schools of bright-darting fish, my body ethereally light in the warm tropical current, and all the while the part of me wished I were somewhere else. 
Why? Why is it that even while cavorting in a paradise of earthly delights, we sometimes can't conceal a yawn of apathy, a pang, a disappointment, a nagging sense that something's missing? See, there is a yearning in all of us to discover something new, discover something fresh, to discover an experience that has not been discovered before, to encounter something that's never been encountered before. And so we go out and we trek across the world or we try to engage new people, we try to acquire new things as a way of alleviating this thing. And yet it just looks like the same old things. It just sounds like the same old story. And so you sigh. You sigh because you feel like this insatiable yearning for something new, this newness that you feel is missing out in your life. It's not happening. You get frustrated because you know there's something missing in your life, something that is unlike anything or anyone that you've encountered before, and yet you have no idea what it is. And so you sigh. There it is, the two reasons why, according to Solomon, the human race is constantly sighing. Because there is nothing new under the sun and it frustrates us because we feel like there is something new out there that we need to find but we don't know what it is. But secondly, because of the fact that we're not that significant as we think we are. Evidenced by the fact that people are going to forget us. The problem of FOMO. And so here's the question that we're left with. Is there any hope for us? Is there a hope in which we can finally Live a life that's not so chronically filled with disappointing, frustrating, wearying sighs. The answer leads me to my final point, the hope of our sighs. Let's read again verse 10 through 11 where Solomon writes, Is there a thing to which it is said, see, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who have come after Solomon is simply repeating what he said in the previous verses before. There's nothing new under the sun, and yet you're haunted with this need to discover something new. And so you struggle with FOMO and you sigh. Oh, you have this need of wanting to be remembered, of having impact and meaning in your life to where you make a mark on this earth where you are remembered. But you have the problem of the sun. You're always forgetting. And so you sigh. And so the question is, is there a solution out there that can alleviate this problem of our sighing? Is there something that we can find that is unlike anything Or anyone that we've encountered to where we can say, ah, yes, this is new. Is there something out there that not only can make us feel like, yes, this is new, unlike anything, but also make us feel more significant than what we are. To where we don't feel the haunted sense that we're easily forgotten. Well, the Bible says, yes, there is. But you can't find it here in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. You have to fast forward into the New Testament thousands of years later where you hear the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Listen to what he says from verse 1 all the way to verse 10. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, that when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not wise 
or not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. Here Paul tells us there is something out there that is new, that is so fresh, that is so original, that is unlike anything that he literally says in verse 8, what? No eye has seen, no ear has heard. Isn't that interesting? He uses the very same bodily organ that Solomon refers to in verse 8 of chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes. You know, the eye always wants to see, the ear always wants to hear. Paul says there is something that finally the eyes is going to rest on. The ears is going to stop listening to everything else and focus on this. What no eye has seen, no ear has heard. What is this thing? He tells us exactly what it is in verse 2. Christ and him crucified. Christ and him crucified. In other words, he's talking about the gospel. The gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says God the Son, the second person of our triune God, became a man, Jesus Christ, and he lived the perfect life that none of us did but should have. And he suffered the full consequences of all our sin, namely coming under God's wrath and judgment that we should go under but won't if we repent of our sins and turn to faith to Jesus. Why? Why did God do this for us? Why does he do this for us? Simply, God gives us the gospel so that you would stop sighing. Let me say that again. God has given us the gospel so that we would no longer feel the need to sigh. There's an interesting incident recorded for us in the gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 15, there is a, uh, a moment when Jesus is dying on the cross. In fact, right before he dies, it says this in verse 37. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Here Mark tells us that Jesus When he was about to die and had his last breath in his lungs, you know what he did it with? What did he use his last breath on? He screamed. He literally screamed at the top of his lungs. Isn't that interesting? Why does Jesus use his last breath, right, to scream? Well, most New Testament scholars think that Jesus was screaming to show that he won. Victory. You know, you you ever, like, watch, you know, a sports show and your team, you know, dunks on the opponent or throws a touchdown. What do people do? Like, ah! You know, they start screaming. Or if you ever watch, like, those crazy violent movies on TV, you know, and they finally kill the enemy, what does the king do, you know? Sparta! You know, they start screaming a loud victory. They conquered. They won. Right? Compare that to the sigh, which is another kind of breath. A sigh is quiet. You don't hear it. Right? Why? Because the exact opposite reason for why people scream when they are victorious. A sigh is a breath of defeat. A scream is a cry of victory, right? What is the Bible trying to teach us here? What are we to take away from all this? Here's what we need to take away. 
If you look to Jesus as Lord and Savior, your life will be filled with less sighs and it's going to be filled with more victorious screams. Maybe not literally, but the way you live, you're going to live as if you have just conquered the world. In other words, you will live in this world not as a defeated person just trying to cope, but as a person able to endure like a champion who is victorious. Why? Because everything that Jesus has done for us on the cross eradicates every reason that you have to why you would sigh. Think about it. When Jesus died on the cross as Lord and Savior, what did he do? One of the things that he do is to make sure that you are never forgotten, right? What does Jesus promise us in the book of Revelation? That if you trust in him as Lord and Savior, your name is what? Written forever in the book of life. Your name. Not a number that's assigned to you, but your personal specific name. God forever remembers you. He knows exactly who you are. He doesn't forget you. In fact, in the Psalms, one of my most favorite ones says that he knows us so well if we are in Christ, he actually records all of our sighs. He collects all of our tears in his bottle. You know, we live in a world that get all of us, right? We live in a world 10 years from now, 20 years from now, maybe even before we die, we're going to be forgotten. And you can say, wow, that, that's really sad. But is it? Because if you think about it, a couple thousand million years from now, the world is going to end. The world's going to be no more. So really, what tragedy is it that the world that forgets you ends up becoming a world that doesn't exist anymore? But what if you are remembered by someone who is forever? What if you're remembered by someone who is eternal? Does it really matter if this world and the people in it forget who you are? If the one who is forever, who lives forever, who can never be defeated is always going to remember you? You see, in the gospel, it alleviates the problem of the sun. Because even the sun eventually is going to burn out. But if you are in the true son, Jesus Christ, you are forever remembered. Where his shining love that brightly comes upon you is always upon you for all eternity. But you know what? That's not all. Because another thing that the gospel does is that it alleviates the other problem. The problem of FOMO, right? Of missing out. Because if you are in Jesus, what do you now have? You now have access to that undiscovered country. The place filled with experiences that no experience on earth could ever come close into copying. You have access to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven. In Christ, you now have the destiny of being in a place that cannot be replicated, duplicated, or shadowed in this world. That is the promise of the gospel, that you have a place. Jesus is now preparing a place for you in this amazing place. Filled with people who are so different to what they were like when they were walking on this earth. You know what? What makes the gospel so amazing is that even the things that are in heaven that are from the old earth... They're nothing like the old earth. They get renewed. They're different. So even the people, for example, that you got annoyed with here, like maybe your siblings, your parents, your children, you meet them again in heaven. They're not like what they were on earth. They're practically new. So even the old things are new. To where even the things that you had on the earth are like brand new things. Because they've changed. You have changed. You're not like what you were on earth. You are going to be different. You are going to be glorified. You see, it's only in Jesus that the problems that cause us to sigh finally get alleviated and we finally can say, 
Ah, ah, you know, that, that sound of refreshment, that sound of satisfaction. It's only through Jesus that we overcome the things that make us sigh in this world, which means it's in Jesus that you can face this reality rather than try to run away from it. NCF, let me close my message by asking you this question. How are you responding to your size? How are you trying to manage your size? Are you trying to manage your size by trying to minimize it as much as possible, by trying to avoid reality at all costs so that you can be as comfortable as you can be on this earth? Yeah, you see the world is messed up. The reality that we live in is broken. Do you fixate on just getting a job, making certain amounts of money, living in a certain type of neighborhood so you can try and minimize the size that the human race have to collectively suffer together? Is that what your ambition is? Or are you someone who has claimed the promises of the gospel, clung to Jesus as your only hope and savior, centered your life on him and knowing him and being known by him and seeking to honor him and live for him so that you have the courage to scream victory in a world that is so broken? where you're willing to go into this broken world, not run away from it, and actually serve and to bless those who are struggling in this world. Because you know that if you have Jesus, you have everything. You're not missing out on anything. And you don't have to worry about being a nobody or forgotten because in Christ, all of those problems are gone. So here's my question. Which of these two are you choosing? Are you choosing to engage with reality through Christ? Or are you, without Christ, trying to run away from reality? You see, it's only when you embrace the gospel that you are really in touch with reality. It's those who don't have Christ who are not engaging reality. So that's my charge to you. Are you engaging this reality? Are you seeking to truly make an impact through blessing and service? Because you know all the reasons to why you shouldn't engage it all the reasons that cause you to sigh have been completely alleviated in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we think more about all the things in this world that make us just go, Father, we just need your grace and mercy. We need to be reminded that you are greater than our sighs. You are greater than our fears and our troubles. You're greater than even the brokenness of this world. Father, we are being accused by this world that we are so irrelevant, that we're so disengaged with reality. But, Father, we know that it's only as we engage you, as we engage the gospel of your son Jesus, that we're able to engage reality fully, even when reality is not friendly to us. Father, we pray that we would go out into this world not as cowards, but as victors in Christ. Father, this world is filled with so many sighs of the broken, the homeless, the poor, the forgotten, the oppressed. And Father, you have commissioned us to stay on this earth, even after giving us saving faith, so that we can go out into the world and change those sighs into victorious cries. And yet, Father, some of us have not gotten over our own sighs. Father, forgive us. Help us now to apply this message into our hearts. Holy Spirit, make this message come alive into our hearts so that we can no longer have the excuse of just living a life of size, but instead live a life of victorious cries 
of hope. Would you enable us to do that? Would you empower us to do that? For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.